let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory of your great name and the beauty of the gospel. And please help me now by your spirit to open up your word and make clear what you want us to know. And may we be impacted to the very soul, to the core of our being, and respond appropriately. Show us Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. I've entitled this message, Christmas, the Gospel, and You. Christmas, the Gospel, and You. Isaiah 9, we'll be reading verses 2 through 6, a well-known passage of Scripture. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, as you all know, Christmas is this week. And all over the world, people are preparing, getting ready for the one day of the year that's supposed to make everything better. No matter what you're dealing with. According to the world, Christmas makes everything better. This is the season that brightens everything, cheers up everyone, and really causes the world to be generous and loving and full of joy. You have to wonder, how can such an idea be so ingrained into the very fabric of our society? Well, with much help. The songs of Christmas help with that mindset. I did a search for the top 20 Christmas songs of all time. Listen to the lyrics from some of these at the very top. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Take a look at the 5 and 10. That would be the department store. It's glistening once again with candy canes and silver lanes that glow. 
It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, toys in every store, but the prettiest sight to see is the holly that will be on your own front door. So, why is Christmas something that's supposed to make you full of joy and cheer and happiness? Because when you look outside on the streets and the stores, it's all lit up. And when you go home, you have a plant on your door. Or this one. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. They know that Santa's on his way. He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh, and every mother's child is going to spy to see if reindeers really know how to fly. So I'm offering you this simple phrase to kids from one age to 92, from old to young. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to you. So what makes Christmas the thing that's supposed to make everything better? Toys. A myth of a man who has the attributes of God, who knows what you've done and will hold you accountable to a legalistic framework. If you're naughty, you get nothing but coal. If you're nice, you get presents. But here's the most popular. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, your troubles will be out of sight. Well, how? (laughs) I mean, don't y'all want to know that? How are your troubles going to be from now on? I mean, they're never coming back. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Wait, you didn't tell me. It's just going to happen. Make the Yuletide gay. That means happy. From now on, your troubles will be miles away. Here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Back in the day, it was better. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. Well, not in the days of COVID. Vaccines and masks. What about when people die? What about when people can't visit? Through the years, we'll always be together. Is that true? Doesn't James say, don't say you will be somewhere tomorrow because you don't know what a day will bring? If the fates allow, well, God is absent. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough. So have yourself a merry little Christmas. You get the idea. So what's the cause? What's the great cause? What what is this truth that's going to make all your problems go away? Decorations, toys, myth, turkey, mistletoe, songs. The hope of seeing everybody celebrating this thing. But here's the question. Is that supposed to bring those child trafficking victims out of their pit of despair? Some turkey and ham? Is pumpkin pie and roasted chestnuts and a new toy supposed to return joy to the families in Kentucky whose five-month-old baby just died by that tornado? 
We're going to offer them some turkey and some mistletoe. It's not just the songs that lie to you and me, convince people you're supposed to be happy, you must be happy, and give you these very temporal uh, sources and tools to bring it about. But what about movies? There's Few things are more common during this time than to snuggle up under a blanket, some hot chocolate, popcorn, and a good Christmas movie. What is the most famous number one Christmas movie of all time? Anybody know? It's a Wonderful Life. Y'all seen that before? We watched it just the other day. Let me give you a synopsis if you haven't seen it. Spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you how it ends. It's a story about a man who never gets what he wants, sacrifices his dreams for the sake of others. This leads him to become bitter, angry, and depressed to the point where he hates his life and wants to end it. So an angel is sent by another angel to help this man so that the angel can get his wings. How does he help him? Does he point him to Jesus Christ? No. Does he remind him of the great mercy and grace that he's been shown all of his life? No. Does he tell him about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God? No. He doesn't tell him a single word of Scripture. He helps him by letting him see Your life has improved the lives of others. You're very special. You're very important. That's how he cheers this man up. Does the angel even do this for the glory of God? No, he does it so that he can get wings. Selfishness. That's the number one Christmas movie of all time. So... We have this season where people are telling you you're supposed to be cheerful, everything's supposed to be good, and what is uh, influencing all of this is songs that say nothing about Jesus and films that are all about self-righteous, selfish, focused living. Santa Claus, reindeer, elves on shelves, magic of Christmas, demonic doctrines. Are you giving in to any of these things? Have you slipped into this? Am I saying that it's forbidden by the Word of God to watch A Wonderful Life or to sing? I'm not saying that. What I am saying is this. What are we doing? What are we really doing when it comes to this day? Now, you say, but pastor, didn't you make a whole Sunday school about how these symbols point to Jesus? Amen. Most of them do symbols. But let me remind you of something. Do you remember what happened in Numbers 21? The Israelites were uh, grumbling. They were complaining. God was merciful to them. They continued to grumble and complain. So God sent fiery serpents among them. Remember? And these serpents were biting them and the people were dying. Moses goes to the Lord. What should we do? The Lord tells him to do what? To make a bronze serpent and put it on a staff. Hold it up. And everyone who looks at this will be healed. Now in John's Gospel, we get insight into the true meaning of the symbol. 
The symbol was not meant to be the focus. The symbol was pointing to something else. And in John 3, 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's the symbol, the shadow, and the fulfillment. But do you all know what the Israelites were doing with this bronze serpent? Do you know that it had to be destroyed? Why? 2 Kings 18, 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Eli, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah, and listen to this, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They were worshiping the bronze serpent. The people took what was supposed to point them to Christ and worshiped it itself. And brothers and sisters, that is what is happening with Christmas symbols all over the world. These things that are supposed to point to Christ and His birth, His his salvation, the Gospel, people have taken Christ completely out of it and focused upon the symbol and worshipped the symbol itself. Nicholas was a real man who defended the deity of Christ at the Council of Nicaea and people have taken this man who is a symbol to point to Christ and his deity, and have made Santa Claus and worship Santa Claus. The tree that is meant to point to Christ upon the tree, the eternal, everlasting, forever promises of God, the never-changing nature of our God. And people worship trees. The lights that were meant to be an Ebenezer for us, to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world have become the whole focus and point itself. The truth is there is something special about this season. The truth is there is something dynamic and unique because this is when the Savior came. There is something special. But if you remove Christ, all you have is snacks and songs and decorations. And that brings no hope No joy, no life, no salvation. And we have to be honest with ourselves. I have to be honest with myself and you have to be honest with yourself. What truly excites you about Christmas? Children, what truly excites you about Christmas? If you were one of those families that lost everything in Kentucky, or in Haiti, or in Afghanistan, or Ethiopia, or the hundred other places where people have lost everything if there were no trees and no songs, no electricity, no food, no decorations, none of that, would you have as much joy? Would you have as much cheer? Would you have as much interest Or are you struggling to keep focused in this crazy culture? Are you finding yourself blending in 
with the way that the world celebrates Christmas more and more and more. If so, be of good cheer. I did not come to bring you bad news, but good news. I want to help you as I want to help me. I want to help your family as I want to help my family. I want to encourage you and go to the very source of all joy, of all cheer, of all hope, of all meaning, of it all. I want to go back to the gospel. So, Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Every Christian, this is your testimony. You were in darkness. You lived in darkness. It was a way of life. Have you ever been in a room that is so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face? It can be so dark that you can see nothing. I've been in rooms that are so dark I had to walk along the wall. And it's a terrifying thing because you keep thinking something's going to hit you in the face. You're going to trip over something. What is the one thing you want most of all when you're in a room or you're in a place that is so dark? What do you want to find? What do you want to see? What do you want to come to? Light. Light. The text doesn't say that we visited darkness. It doesn't say that we looked into a dark room. What does it say? It says that we walked in darkness. Meaning this was the path of your life. You walked in the path of darkness. You were walking in darkness. And where were you headed? You were headed to the place of utter darkness, of outer darkness. And it will be enough to just walk in the dark and be headed to the dark, but the truth of the matter is the reason why you walked in the dark and the reason why you were headed to the place of outer darkness is because darkness was inside of you. Do you remember this? The Bible says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Darkness is sin. Darkness is wickedness. Darkness is idolatry. Darkness is rebellion and evil. It says those who dwelt in a land of darkness. Not only are you walking in darkness, but we dwelt there. Uh, There are these nature films that I like to watch. My family, we watch them from time to time. And there was one um, episode, we have this thing called uh, Planet Earth. And they have this one episode that shows you the frozen places of the world. Antarctica and things like that. And, and they're filming these animals, these creatures in this frozen wasteland. And the only way that we have this footage is because they had to have cameramen. They had to have people taking photos, following the animals. But you know, like I do, after the filming was done, those people left. Because they don't live there. But those creatures live there. That's their habitat. That's their home. That's where they dwell. Brothers and sisters, you and I were not visiting the land of darkness. That's where we lived. We were surrounded and filled with all things dark. 
And like that place of intense snow and ice, everything was affected. There was ice and snow on everything. And that's how it was when we were walking and living in darkness. You thought dark thoughts. Do you remember? You desired dark things. You did dark activities. You said dark words. It was all sinful, dark, selfish, self-centered, idolatrous, proud, arrogant, angry, lustful. Your entire world, your entire heart, your makeup, it was all dark. Do you remember the former days? You recall when you were living and dwelling and walking in the deep, dark land, and the sad thing is you didn't want to leave. You liked it there. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That was us. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You may be here and still in that darkness. For you, I'm not describing something that was the past. I'm describing for you what is true of you right now. And you're miserable because it's dark. There's no joy. There's no hope in you. But here's the good news. We keep reading. And what does it say? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great... Light. Something glorious happened to you and I. Something happened and we've not been the same ever since. Light. We saw light. Think of that man in John 9 who was born blind and what happened? Suddenly his eyes were opened and he could see. Suddenly when it was dark, now there is light. Isn't that what happened to you? You were born in the darkness of your sin Selfish, self-focused, self-righteous, everything was about you. Blinded, you couldn't see the beauty of Christ, you couldn't see the glory of God, you couldn't see the beauty of the Word of God, but then the light shone upon you, you saw it. It was 2012, we were still living in San Antonio, and my family wanted to do something outdoors, so I wanted to take my family on a camping trip. So I signed up, we packed up all of our stuff, and said, all right, we're going to go camping. And I didn't know what primitive camping meant. (laughs) We found out. So I have this, what, eight-person tent on my back. Judah is a little baby. He's in the front carrier. My wife is carrying stuff. Uh, Adoniah, Isaiah, and Grace, little Grace, we're all going and say, get out of the car. Okay, we're going to walk. It's a mile to the campground. So we walk a mile through the woods as the sun is setting. I'm like, oh, it's going to be nice. We're going to have a nice fire. We're going to make s'mores, set up the tent. It's going to be beautiful. And we get there, and what we discover is there's nothing but trees and grass and dirt because that's what primitive camping is. And I realize, oh, we're not set up for this. We're not prepared for this. We've got to turn around. We've got to go back a mile. But it's dark, and we don't have flashlights. And I have a cell phone, but the battery's dying, which means the flashlight's dying. And so now I am seeking to lead my family through the woods in the dark 
a mile. Wild animals. It's hard. We're tired. I'm tired. I'm complaining. My wife's trying to sing hymns and stuff. We're making our way back and we're just weary. Isaiah falls. He hits his head. He's bleeding. It is just miserable. And we're pressing on and our feet are heavy. But then in the distance, we see the lights from the parking lot which told us our car was near. And suddenly, energy that did not exist sprung up. And hope and joy and encouragement and adrenaline, why? Because light meant hope. We saw the light and we were encouraged. And brothers and sisters, you who walked in darkness and lived in darkness, isn't that exactly what happened? You had no meaning to your life. You were wandering this world empty, purposeless, Stuck in sin, but then the gospel was preached. You heard about Christ. The light was seen and hope came. Life came. Joy came. Encouragement came. Isn't that what happened to you too? But the Bible doesn't just say that we saw light. It said that on them light has shone. That's the difference from seeing the sunrise on YouTube and seeing the sunrise in an open field, when the light shines upon you and you can feel the heat and you can feel the warmth. This is your testimony, isn't it? And now when the light shines on you, when at one time all you could see was darkness, now with the sun beaming in your face, all you can see is what? Light. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly the life and the reality of the Christian. When at at one time you couldn't see Christ at all and all you could see was the world and darkness and sin and the stuff that makes up life here, now all you see is Christ. And if you celebrate Christmas, that's the whole point. He's in everything. That tree talks about Him. This food talks about Him. This song talks about Him. All that we do is meant to glorify Glorify the Lord. The very heavens itself proclaims the glory of God. Day by day, it brings forth speech. But that only comes when the light shines upon you. Everything becomes about Jesus. Have you seen the light? Have you seen the light of Christ? Is He shining upon you or are you still in the dark, headed to the darkness? filled with darkness. But it continues. Not only those who were in dark have seen light, not only those who lived in the dark, now the light shines upon them. But he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. You have multiplied the nation. God has done this. You think about the church. Our brother Chris has been taking us through the book of Acts and we see the church in its infancy stage. Here it is, 11 apostles, frightened, hiding. They're hiding out at the end of the gospel until Jesus appears to them. You have a bunch of women. This is a ragtag group. But something happens. Here is the day of Pentecost. The gospel is proclaimed and thousands believe. 
Day by day, the Lord is adding to the church those who are being saved. Jesus talked about this little mustard seed that goes into the ground, but it grows into this massive tree so much so that the birds that used to eat the seeds now find their rest in the shade of the tree. This is what the Lord is doing. He has multiplied the nation. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. Brothers and sisters, you look around in this very congregation. We have Christians from different nationalities, from Brazil and Haiti, Mexico, Africa, America. The Lord is growing the church by His power. It's multiplying. Here where it was, just this tiny group that was being bullied by Rome. Now you look around the world throughout history and you see, Christians in this country, in that country, in the most difficult places, in Iran, the most hard to be a Christian locations, there you still see the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit. This is the work. This is what we celebrate. You have multiplied the nation. This is what God has done. And then you see where it says, you have increased its joy. All credit and all glory goes to God. He's the one who's doing this. The Lord has increased the joy of the nations. How has He increased our joy? You know what? Everyone here who's born again, whatever else may be different about you, this is true. You know Him. You know Him. People know about mechanics, technology, science, Math, architecture, they know about history, they know about government, they know about politics, they know about culture, they know about medicine, but they don't know the Lord. You do. You are the few in this massive world of billions of people who actually know God. That is how your joy has increased. You love Him. You enjoy Him. You seek His face and desire His presence. And isn't it true, the closer you get to Him, the more you see, and the more you see, the more you what? You want to see. You want to get closer. He satisfies your soul. He has become the treasure of your heart. He's the very meaning of your life and the purpose of your existence. Everyone else is living for money, for fame, status, success. But who are you living for, Christian? You live for Christ. You wake up in the morning for Him. You spend your day for Him. You go to sleep at night and think, Lord, how did I not live for You? Where did I fail you? How can I do better? I don't want to bring shame upon your name. Why are those the thoughts that are filling your mind? Because you love him and you know him and he knows you and you're in him. He is the very meaning and purpose of your life. That is the work of Christ. That is the work of the Spirit. A great light has shone upon you. Christmas is not about gifts unless those gifts tell the story of God's gift. Christmas isn't about trees unless that tree points to the tree that he died upon. Christmas isn't about songs unless those songs proclaim the song of the redeemed. He's increased our joy. What else? 
What else has the Lord done to increase our joy? You tell me. What is the joy of the Christian? What has he done to increase our joy? Shout it out. No fear of death. death. This world terrified of death. Masks, vaccines, stay away, stay away. Please don't come near. I don't want to die. Of course, because they have no hope for the world to come. This is all they have. They cling to this life with all that they have. And they are kicking and screaming to avoid death. But death is coming for everyone. But what what is the truth for the child of God? To quote Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have no fear of death. Death takes us to our Lord. That's where we want to go. We have no fear of dying. Precious in the sight of God are the death of his saints. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. No fear of death. What else do we have? What has he done to increase our joy? Unconditional love. Oh, how are we treated in this world even by Christians, well-meaning Christians, but it's conditional. If you do this, unless you do that, it's so conditional. And God in His mercy loves us in spite of us. We didn't have to earn that love. That love came. It doesn't mean that His love doesn't have conditions. Oh, indeed, there are conditions to the gospel. If you do not believe, you will perish. If you do not repent, you will perish. There are conditions to being with Christ, but He lavishes upon us love that we do not deserve. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and this was to show God's love at the appropriate time. Unconditional love. True, agape love. What else? Hope. Peace. Hope and peace. We're going to get to peace in a minute. But hope. Hope. Your day could be terrible. You may have had the worst week of your life. How can you wake up the next day? Why do you not put an end to it all? Because as it says in Colossians, our hope is in heaven. And why is our hope in heaven? Because our Lord dwells in heaven. Our hope is in the one who came and died. No wrath. You will not go to hell because Christ drank the cup for you. You are forgiven of every single sin, past, present, and future. Do you think that increases joy? What about adoption? Adoption. You see that child, especially during this time, I want it, I want it, I want it. And you think that child needs some Proverbs application. The rod, right? Do you ever say, I would love to take that child home and bring him into my family and make him one of my own children? Probably not. Maybe on a good day you might hint at it. But the child who is rambunctious and wild and violent and abusive, who wants to adopt that child? God adopts you. In all of your depravity, He chose you, knowing exactly what you are and what you would do. Adoption. He doesn't just forgive you and say, all right, forgive you, but stay over there. That's what we do to each other, right? I forgive you, but don't talk to me. No. God forgives and says, come near. Here's my table. Here is your seat. 
once your enemy, now seated at your table. You are my child. You are a friend. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus said, uh, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. I share with you my plans. What a thing. He's increased our joy by giving us one another. Jesus said, I don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Because of me, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Some of you know exactly what that's like. When, I, when the Lord saved me, I left Islam to follow Christ. Family said, I don't want nothing to do with you. I had friends, cousins, family that cut me off. I lost family. But I gained brothers. I gained sisters. And so have you. You can go anywhere in this world. And if they say, Jesus You have a brother, you have a sister, you have a family wherever you go. This is the increase of our joy. Do you see it? He's multiplied the nations and he has increased our joy. This is what he's done. But he's not done yet. You don't need holly and turkey and mistletoe for you to have cheer in the midst of this season and the rest of your life. You have these eternal truths. Look at this. Verse 3. They rejoice before you, I love this, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What do those two things have in common? They are both pictures of enjoying the result of someone else's labor. It doesn't say, and they rejoice as in planting the crop. There's joy with that. Or um, cultivating the crop, watering the field. No, 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 no. It's the joy when all the work has already been done and all there is is fruit to take. All there is is crops to enjoy. The focus is on the harvest. Our joy comes from the work of Christ. We reap the benefits. He's planted. He's watered. He's cultivated. He's done all the work. And we rejoice at one at harvest because after all of His work, you and I get to enjoy the fruit of His labor. That's the gospel. The same is with the battle. As one who divides the spoil. Now some soldiers will tell you there is pleasure that comes in fighting. Well, maybe. But that's not what is said here. He fought the war. He defeated the enemy. He shed his own blood. Where is the rejoicing? Not in working, not in fighting, not in planning, not in watering, not in battle or defending, but in the division of the spoil after the battle is done, after the enemies are destroyed. All that's left is treasure. This is why the Christian's joy is increased because our Lord, who is mighty in battle, defeated all of our enemies and we enjoy the fruit of his work. That's the good news. Doesn't that increase your joy to think on these things? Well, look at the next verse. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder. Who is this? This is us. This is the one who walked in darkness. This is the one whose joy is being increased. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
These are pictures of slavery. These are pictures of bondage. These are pictures of being captive. And this is telling us that Christ has set us free from the bondage of decay. He has loosed the chains of sin in your life. Don't you know that? Don't you see that in your life, Christian, that you were a slave? Didn't you try everything under the sun to stop doing this and start doing that, to cut this off from your life? But what would you do? You would go right back to it. It was like the woman with the issue of blood. What did she do? She tried everything. She went to doctors, but she was worse. She spent all of her money, but nothing was different. We heard this morning from Acts... Uh, Mark 5, here's this man. They tried to bind him. They tried to stop him. But no one could control him. No one could fix him. But like the woman with the issue of blood, she saw Christ. If I would just touch the fringe of his garment, I would be healed. The man who was so filled with demons, thousands of them, that no one could stop him. He saw Christ from far away and he fell down before him. This is what happened to you when the gospel was preached, when the Spirit of God made you alive by His mercy and grace. You were once a slave. You were in chains. You were in bondage. You were captive. You remember? You tried and tried and tried to no avail. He says, like, as on the day of Midian. Well, what happened with Midian? Midian is from Judges. And here's Gideon. And Gideon is being told to go lead the army, go fight. And he has all these people with him, 22,000, scaled down to 10,000. And God said, that's too many. Scale it down, scale it down, scale it down until there's only 300. And this is what it says. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. This is the picture God gives us in Isaiah 9. Humanly impossible. The odds are so against you. There's no way to do this by the arm of the flesh. And God, by His mighty power, brings salvation. These are all saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's pointing to salvation that is of the Lord and not of man. It's not by works. It's not by effort. It's not by strength. It's not by desire. It is by the mercy and grace of our God. That's why those who are in darkness no longer dwell in darkness. That's why those who are in bondage are no longer in bondage. That's why we are free. That's why we are able to have our joy increased and the nations multiplied because of His mighty work. The next verses, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the, the, the wardrobe of the warrior. The thing that will cause us to be terrified. Look at the boots. Look at the clothes stained with blood. These are terrifying, mighty warriors. These are things that will cause us to be afraid. And what does God do? He says, this is nothing but fuel for the fire. He takes the teeth out of the lion. 
He declaws the bear. He puts the fire out of the dragon's mouth, the bullets out of the gun. In other words, every enemy that would stand against you now works for you. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You can take the most intense trials of your life and they make you more like Christ. You can take the very devils of hell and they are just tools to bring you to the place where you call upon the throne of grace. As Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throws me up against the rock of ages. Everything in this world that goes wrong works for you, Christian, to make you more like Jesus, to produce more fruit. Your faith is being tested to make you more faithful, to make you more steadfast so that you might endure. There is no enemy that can stand against you because if God is for us, who can be against us? He takes the thing that would frighten you and makes it fuel for the fire to warm you. The big question is why? And here's where we're bringing it in. We get this boom, 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 boom. These amazing titles. Why are those who are in darkness now in light? Why has the church multiplied with many nations? Why is the joy of the Christian increased? Why have the chains of the slave been broken along with the yoke and staff? Why are the terrifying enemies of the Christian now nothing to be afraid of? Verse 6. For to us, a child is born. A child was born. And the birth of this child changed everything. Christmas is not about some spirit of Christmas. It's not about Santa Claus or Frosty the Snowman, the Grinch, Elf on a Shelf, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Christmas is about the child who was born who changed the entire universe. Do you know him? The birth of this child brings with it a shift. Darkness to light, anguish and gloom to increased and eternal joy, slavery to freedom, fear to confidence. But it was not just a child that was born, there's also a son that was given. Jesus of Nazareth was born, son of David. He came into this world through the womb of a virgin. He had a body. He had blood. He was really born. He cried and hungered and thirsted. He had needs. He was a real man, yet without sin. The child was born, but the son was not born. The son was given. Do you see it? Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. The son is given. The son cannot be born because the son has existed forever. Before time began, he was there. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The son is given. The son is the second person of the Trinity. This Son is the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We have the two natures of Jesus. He was the Son of David and the Son of God, united in one man, Christ the Lord. This is why everything that we've looked at up to this point can be Because the Son was given 
and the child is born. The child born points to the humanity of Christ. The son given points to the deity of Christ. Why does it need to be both? Well, the child is born because the wages of sin is death and God cannot die. The son is given because you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and no man or prophet has ever been perfect. The child is born because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The son is given because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and only God is able to glorify God as he deserves to be. The child is born because through one man's sin, death entered the world, and so it takes a man to end the curse. And the son was given because God's wrath is infinite, and only an eternal God could take that wrath and rise again. As Isaiah prophesied earlier, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And please don't skip over that line, unto us. In this season of giving gifts and exchanging gifts, you know the difference between a very expensive gift and a cheap gift. If you had a $500,000 gift, would you give it to a two-year-old? You're like, no. Why? Because that child would not know how to handle or take care of such a valuable gift. Well, brothers and sisters, unto us, unto us, unto you and I, God has given His Son. Well, what are we told about this Son? The government shall be upon his shoulders. Which government? All of them. This is pointing to the fact that he is the king of all kings and lord of all lords. Yes, this child in a manger is the very one who rules over all kings and thrones, who reigns and has authority. Not only does he have authority, but he is the ultimate and supreme authority. He is the king of Biden. He is the king of the kings of Saudi Arabia. He is the king of all rulers, leaders, and dictators. And it was a symbolic thing, a way of talking about burden for something to be upon the shoulder. And he doesn't just have um, people or this land or that. He has the entire government of the entire universe, all worlds, all lands, all peoples upon his shoulders, telling us that he rules as king. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Adrian Rogers said this, Jesus is wonderful. Everything about Him is wonderful. His birth is wonderful. His life is wonderful. His works are wonderful. His words are wonderful. His death is wonderful. His resurrection is wonderful. His ascension is wonderful. His intercession for us is wonderful. His coming again is wonderful. And you remember when the Lord showed up to Manoah and he said, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? 
seeing it is wonderful. The Lord Christ, His name is wonderful. He's a wonderful counselor. Such wonderful counsel. There are ignorant counselors in this world. People will give you marriage counsel, financial counsel, counsel on this and counsel on that, but there is no counsel like the counsel of the wonderful counselor. What has he been counseling you to do? What is his instruction? Repent and believe the gospel. Love the Lord. Follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. Do you hear the counsel of the wonderful counselor? All of his words are true and they're good and wise. They're noble and brilliant. See the counselor. Spurgeon reminds us of this, how we need Jesus as our counselor. It was by a counselor that this world was ruined. Did not Satan mask himself in the serpent and counsel the woman with exceeding craftiness that she should take unto herself of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the hope that thereby she should be as God? Ah, beloved, it was meet that the world should have a counselor to restore it if it had a counselor to destroy it. The Lord has given us a wonderful counselor to undo the wicked counsel of the serpent. Do you talk to the wonderful counselor? Do you listen to him? Do you follow his counsel? Have you ever given counsel to somebody? I mean, really good counsel, and they didn't take it. You, sh- you told them, don't do this thing. This is going to end in death. Don't go this way. Get out of that relationship. Don't go to that thing. I'm telling you, please listen to my counsel. And what did they do? You plead with your children. Please, please, my dear child, I don't want to have to spank you. Here's my counsel. Do this. And they go the opposite way. And we grieve and mourn when such a thing is done. But here is the counselor of all counselors, the wonderful counselor who tells us the way of life, who points us to the way of hope and truth and light and glory. And how often do we spurn his counsel? Brothers and sisters, cling to the counsel of the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. Mighty God, this child that is to be born shall be called Mighty God. You know what's amazing? Is this child who laid in a manger in Bethlehem created Bethlehem itself. He is the Mighty God. He is not to be confused with a prophet or an angel or some other type of being. No, this child is God himself. This could be rendered God is a warrior or God is mighty. It speaks of his military might that every enemy that stands before him is crushed. Not just to the fact that he's God, but that he is a warrior. What are the enemies that plague you? What are the enemies that tempt you, that frighten you? Oh, children, I know so many of you can be afraid of the dark, afraid of the shadows, Last night, my daughter said, I think there's something outside my window, and it sounded really weird, and it was a branch scraping on the window. But that's reality, right? We can be afraid of things. 
But here is our mighty God, the mighty warrior who crushes every foe, every enemy. Don't you want to be at peace with him? Don't you want to be on the side of him? He is the one who brings a change to this world. He's the focus. He is the mighty warrior. As Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the mighty God. Are you in submission to the mighty God? Or are you still fighting against the warrior? Are you taking the counsel of the wonderful counselor or are you still like the rest of the sheep going your own way? Everlasting Father. Some of y'all have been waiting for this. Here's what it literally means the Father of eternity. Isaiah is not saying that the Son is the Father, which the false teaching modalism, T.D. Jakes, would say, no, the Father is the Son, and the Son is the Spirit, and they just, like a transformer, change modes. No, that is heresy, and a damnable one at that. In context, the Son being called the everlasting father or the father of eternity it's speaking to the functions of a father a father who gives life and the bible tells us even there in john 1 and colossians that all things were made through him by him nothing was made except that it was made by him it wasn't made without him he is the creator of all things It also speaks not only of the one who gives life, but of the one who provides, one who protects, one who teaches and disciplines. Job 29, 16, Job said, I was a father to the needy. Not literally, but in what way? Here is a needy person, and like a father provides and protects their children, I step in like a father. That's what Job was saying. Christ is an eternal and everlasting Father in the way that He provides for His people and protects His people. Isaiah 22, 20, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. That's the idea here. And where the Lord Jesus Christ says that I am the good shepherd. And you think of Psalm 23. All of the qualifications to be this father of eternity is found in Christ. And how he leads and protects from the wolf with a staff and a rod. And he leads to the place where the, where the sheep can eat and be safe and grow. And guided and loved and protected. Is this not Christ when you follow him? He says, follow me. And it's an everlasting fatherhood. As he promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Finally, the Prince of Peace. 
He is the very champion of peace. He brings peace. Because this world is in chaos. And some of you have chaos inside of you. You're always in conflict. You're always in arguments. You're always in disagreements. There's no peace in the relationships you have because there's no peace inside of you. How can you have peace? It's not by anything external. The only way to have peace is to know the Prince of Peace, to be in Christ who is the very Prince of Peace. And Jesus, He does the most peaceful thing possible. He takes His Father who is at odds, who is in anger against mankind. There's enmity and strife. He takes man who hates God, who is an enemy of God, who does not love God, and He makes peace between His Father and uh, and with us. He brings us together in peace. And how does He do this? By His own death. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the whole meaning, the whole purpose, the whole point of everything that you are supposed to be doing on December 25th and every day of your life. The birth of Christ has changed everything. Does your life show that? Do your celebrations show that? Do your children know that? If not, repent. Be done with the spirit of the season and cling to the promises of Isaiah 9. Be done with the worldly way of recognizing His birth and focus upon who He is, why He came, what He's done, and why it matters. It's all about Him. Father, would You please forgive us for even the temptation to blend in with this world's way of recognizing the coming of Your Son. Lord, we live in this world. It doesn't mean that we can't have candy canes and the things like that. But Father, You know the danger of blurring the lines, of drifting. And You know how compelling it can be, especially to our children, to talk about Santa and all the rest of this foolishness when You sent your Son, to rescue us, to bring us from darkness to light and slavery to freedom and eternal joy. And You have given us, us, the greatest gift of all, Your very Son and relationship with You, forgiveness of sin, wrath removed. Lord, please help us to treasure such glorious truth and help us to live in light of it. In Jesus' name, Amen.